Marriage is not an evil thing. It is adultery that is evil. It is fornication that is evil. Marriage is a remedy to eliminate fornication. Let us not, therefore, dishonor marriage by the pomp of the devil. Instead, let those who take wives now do as they did at Cana in Galilee. Let them have Christ in their midst. How can they do this, someone asks? By inviting the clergy. He who receives you, the Lord says, receives me. So drive away the devil, throw out the lewd songs, the corrupt melodies, the disorderly dances, the shameful words, the diabolical display, the uproar, the unrestrained laughter, and the rest of the impropriety. Bring in instead the holy servants of Christ, and through them Christ will certainly be present along with his mother and his brothers, for he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills. Joining me today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz, sorry, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, to talk about John Chrysostom and marriage and family. So, very good stuff we're going to talk about. This is the latest installment of our Preaching Christ episode, or excuse me, Preaching Christ series. I'll get it together eventually, folks. So, it's our Preaching Christ series, Chrysostom on marriage. Good stuff. Adam, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Oh, doing well. Doing well. Zelwyn's not here, so I'm manning all of the uh, electronic stuff, so I hope everyone can hear me okay. This is not usually... Most of the things I work in are wood or brass or lead of some kind. I this <laughs> Mostly this, lead. Thing, yeah. <laughs> this uh, internet thing is just... It's not going to catch on. Yeah, I mean, we're we're pretty deep inside the tubes this evening. People should know that. It's true. Uh, Zelwyn has gone off into the forest to, again, gather more supplies uh, for his larder as winter is surely coming and he must slumber. <laughs> somehow somehow he's both like a, a herd cryptid, but also a gatherer. So, you know, the folks at home can figure that out. And with some of the uh, new media whisperings about UFOs, I'm sure all will become clear very soon for all our listeners. You know, I, I must say, I, I love all of the media stuff about UFOs lately because, as in everything, word fitly spoken will eventually be vindicated. <laughs> no question in my mind. So uh, how is the weather in Fort Wayne? Uh, it is uh, gray, depressing. Uh, some so, Today, somebody pointed out that I was beginning to cope like a real Midwesterner by talking about how the wind wasn't so bad. And uh, <laughs> then a great darkness came over my soul. So, you know, that's where we're at. Um, just chilly here, you know, uh, basically the same. There's really no need to weather post when it's just you and I. Yeah, we're, right. We're in the same almanac region, so it's going to be <laughs> going to be the same no matter what. But still warm enough for the chickens to get out and move and peck, but we can feel winters slowly, slowly creeping up on us. Right. So, uh, Chrysostom on uh, marriage. That's a pretty fun topic, right? This is one that people like to hear about. Why are we taking up this subject? Well, Chrysostom is not his name so much as an epithet, and it means golden-mouthed, and it's given to John, who is brought up in Antioch, one of the biggest cities, in the 4th century AD. So you're looking at his life covers pretty much the time between when Christianity becomes officially legal near the beginning of the 4th century and when it becomes, by the end of the 4th century, 
the official, let's say, state-sanctioned religion of the empire, which is still at least nominally East and West at that time. And so he's such a good preacher in first Antioch, and then after that, Constantinople, or at least he's makes himself so clear that he's going to get deposed in Constantinople for his preaching. But he's such a good preacher that he get he earns the title uh, Golden Mouth. So there are a couple different collections of his sermons. We have over 900 sermons recorded by listeners. And so we know that he preached these, and there's all kinds of subject matter. We've picked out the ones on marriage to start, not because he preached them necessarily at weddings, but about marriage on passages of scripture that that pertain to marriage kind of as they came up in the church's reading. Yeah. Excellent person to to talk about this. Um, honestly, I think patristic marriage writing is much richer than what we get even in, I mean, certainly in, in modern books, but it, it's almost like we've been on a steady decline with the estate of marriage <laughs> since the early <laughs> days of the church. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, we need to we need to ponder that you know the purpose of marriage, and and sort of the focus of this episode how to preach on marriage, of right. course, right. But honestly, a lot of the things that we're saying in this episode, if you were to say them uh, just directly from a pulpit or in a Bible study or just you know casually in a conversation, people would not receive them well. Yeah, right. And and I think one of the things that's really distinctive about all his preaching, so before we get into any of the specific sermons, I mean, we can link in the show notes to the volume that we're pulling these from because it's cheap, it's easily available, it's a great read. Something that's distinctive of all the sermons is that Chrysostom will preach in the second person most of the time, both in the verbs that he uses, the pronouns that he uses, and also asking rhetorical questions directed to his audience. And so that's that's also something where he's not at all kind of beating around the bush, like saying, you know, generally this is what's going to work, but if that doesn't work for you, you know, understood. If that doesn't work for you, you know, that's okay. He's preaching in the second person. So you're hearing, do this, don't do that, think this way, don't think that way. And that in itself, I think, is really effective and attention-grabbing. But it can be hard for people to handle, which, you know, I mean, that could be their problem, right? That's your call if you're preaching. But it can be hard for people to handle because he, he, never, he never leaves you in doubt as to whether or not this is important or it pertains to your life. Right. Um, there's always urgency. There's always right. a sense of gravity to, to his words that, you know, and, and we and we, we brought this up a lot. I mean, even in our manhood, an episode on being a man and things like that. Um, it's kind of the tone that we want to strike in, in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Uh, well, you find it in scripture, right? I mean, you know, I mean, when Elijah sees that the crowd can't decide if they're going to follow the Lord or Baal, Jehovah, as we say, whether they want to follow Jehovah or Baal. You know, he says, why are you, why are you limping between two opinions? You know, right. so he, he's not, he's not saying like, you know, I could kind of understand if a person were a little confused, you know, a person theoretically, he, he doesn't leave them in doubt. And that direct address is very powerful at the very well, least. Even, even, you know, to speak to this subject directly, Ephesians five, Paul, wives do this, be like this. <laughs> right. Like yeah. This. Right. Um, it's interesting how there, there, there is no custom fit option 
as far as biblical marriage goes. There are certain non-negotiable principles. And it's more than just one man, one woman, right? Not Well, I mean, the principles are more than that. Yeah, It begins right. with one man, one woman, but in that union, there are guidelines and rules and, I mean, I don't know what else to call them. Should we say right. laws? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, Chrysostom makes that explicit when he's preaching on 1 Corinthians 7, because he says, you know, you guys are really concerned, and he says you, you know, you're really concerned to check the civil laws when you get married. So, you know, what happens if I need to divorce her? Is that okay? For what reasons, et cetera, et cetera. And even in his day and, you know, time, the law, the civil laws conflict with the church's laws. He says, if you're going to check the civil laws, first, you need to check the laws of the church, the divine laws. And by laws, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't mean like, um, just sort of, you know, this is code or is this marriage right. going to be up to code? But if God has built men and women in a certain way and, and set up marriage in a certain way, then you want to follow that way rather than a way that's going to wind up in misery, constant strife, and potentially even divorce. Right. So, well, uh, let's go ahead and then dive right in, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. And we're looking, first of all, at what in this little volume on marriage and family life is called Homily 20 on Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. So you can, you know, open up Ephesians 5 and find that for yourselves. You know, Paul's going to be preaching on wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, and also husbands loves your, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And he's going to spend the majority of his time on what it means for husbands to love their wives. In that direct address, he's also going to give advice that we'll go into a little bit more later on finding a good wife, what qualities you're looking for. But first of all, the notion of love, he's going to define you know, in a way that is always, he's always teaching, right? So he doesn't just say like, do this. And then he like tells a funny story about a time that he didn't do that for his wife and how she, you know, valiantly and hilariously corrected him. What, <laughs> what, what he, what he does is he describes salvation because I think marriage is an opportunity to show people really clearly if they don't usually see this, that what we could think about as biblical ethics is really always also a description of how God is. So if he's asking me to love my wife, or if he's asking me to be meek or gentle or lowly of heart, he will also display those characteristics for himself. He won't ask me to do something that he himself is incapable of, do of doing or has not done. And so Chrysostom is very clear and teaches in several different places in this Ephesians 5 sermon the, what Paul describes in Ephesians as a mystery, that is, that Christ loves the church. This means specifically for Chrysostom that the man's chief job is to love his wife and not be harsh with her. That harshness he is going to explain in terms of feminine nature and why that desire for harshness arises in the man. But he finds it out of bounds for a Christian because he says, you know, look, your wife, when you marry her, is nowhere near as awful as the bride that Christ chose for himself. That is the church. The church was in darkness. The church was covered in sin. And Christ has made it his aim to present his bride without wrinkle or blemish, 
any such thing. So you also make that your aim. So one of the things that he's always pushing towards in his instructions for husbands is this spiritual aim to marriage. And he derives it from how Christ handles his bride, the church, and also describes marriage as a kind of companionship, the like of which human beings don't experience here on earth. Hmm. So that, that intimate connection between Christ and his ways and the husband and his ways are really what is determinative for Chrysostom. And it's why I think he spends so much more time inculcating the husband's duties than he does the wife's. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of those duties then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of them is that you're, you are leading the marriage somewhere. So by this, the, the chief concern, and it appears in several different sermons, but Chrysostom's chief concern is that the husband would give the wife a false understanding from the very first, maybe even from the wedding ceremonies themselves, of what the marriage is about. So if you make it about money and display, she will understand the marriage to be about money and display. It's interesting. Chrysostom never, maybe because he doesn't have to, never explains how or why the husband's sort of agenda setting will be mirrored by the wife. I think people were probably just a little bit more aware of how male and female natures interact with each other in his time. But if you set the agenda as you know, the glory of Christ and the attainment of eternal life, then that's what the marriage is going to be about. But if you set the agenda as, you know, this marriage is about how you manage our household, which is always increasing in its possessions, and I'll go out and make us rich, then she's going to think that too. And then your your marriage will founder when that is displeasing or becomes boring after a while to one or both of you. Right. And we would agree that uh, marriage is more than just a vehicle to, say, double your income and accumulate more. Right, right. And and for many people, it's not explicitly that, but it does become that. With, with the modern notion of everybody having to work, everybody must have certain symbols, everybody must have certain status, that's what you end up with. Uh, some sort of uh, business partnership. Right, right. Yeah, and th- there's that coldness, and there's another coldness that he's really anxious for them to avoid, which is that that the that the that the union is a union of fear rather than love. He's very clear that you not treat your wife like a household slave, which is of course like common in his day. So the the distinction is probably easier for his audience to understand than our audience. But I think if you think about this, this probably runs in both directions in our day. And there's there's another thing like that that we'll talk about in another segment where the problem is still there, but probably the roles are reversed. And that is that in Chrysostom's day, that the wife's understanding of why she's there or how she can remain there is not through or because of love, but through or because of fear. Yeah. Uh, a kind of, yeah, a servile fear. Right. Right, I must stay here, um, not and not even out of duty, just purely out of uh, fear of what could happen, that sort of thing. Right. That, yeah, that I that I obey and I submit because I'll be beaten if I don't. Right, 
Right. And I, I think probably in our day that that those roles are often reversed, but the fear is the same. That is that I would be since I would be nothing without this person sure. in Chrysostom's day, it's probably the woman always saying that in our day could be either, honestly. Could, I would yeah. be nothing without this person. Therefore I'm gonna stick around. Yeah, it could be nothing in Chrysostom's day means literally could starve to death. Right. Could be nothing in our day could take on any number of, of meanings. Right. Right. Um, that that kind of that gentleness or love is then it's it's going to be reflected in the wife. So there's there's a stress on mutuality in Chrysostom that is a lot like when Paul is talking really strictly speaking about sex in First Corinthians seven, but Chrysostom extends that mutuality, mutual forbearance, and gentleness and kindness. He extends that really to the entirety of the relationship. So conversely, if the husband has to love, then the wife's submission, commanded in Ephesians 5, is also reflected in gentleness and respect and kindness. And therefore, when the husband is choosing a wife, or when he's thinking about, okay, what is the agenda that we're going to set for this marriage? He's setting an agenda which will not necessarily increase the amount of her jewelry, but will that that they will both grow and she especially will grow in i guess there's no better word for it than kindness that what he wants in a woman what he thinks is a supremely womanly virtue we'll see this when he talks about Genesis 24 later is a kind of humble and gentle kindness because when he critiques women within marriage in this first sermon homily 20 he talks about them nagging or berating or speaking evil of their husband, either to other people or to their husband. And it's that, you know, that that Proverbs image of the continual dripping that is really corrosive to the marriage. And so he sees men and women as having distinct vices. If the man's vice can often be harshness or undue force, the woman's vice is a kind of nagging, bitter complaining. Well, good, good to know that we've, um, since the 300s, we've gotten over that thing. That <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's, uh, all those problems are kind of totally gone, of course, yeah. but yeah. Yeah not, yeah, not only do we still have the problem, we've turned it into a commodity, and we've, and we've made virtually every sitcom and cartoon about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's also really sad, because it, it means that the marriage, when, even when we joke about it, and it, I have, although I, I, I can't say I've heard too many sermons, you know, in person that sound like Chrysostom, I've heard plenty of sermons that reflect or joke about things that are very unbiblical in marriage. And I think the unfortunate thing about that is that you're not talking about something like uh, kind of an eccentric choice in dress socks, where it's like, yeah, that's kind of funny. Okay, you know, whatever, that's a, that's a quirk. You're joking about something being disordered when the biblical order that's set up for marriage is a reflection of the gospel. And so you're at the very best settling for something that fails to be the gospel and to reflect the gospel when a properly ordered marriage where the husband is loving and the wife is submitting is actually this beautiful picture of the mystery of the gospel, which is what Paul is saying in Ephesians and Chrysostom is saying in the sermon. So it's really kind of, I mean, we, we've traded our birthright as people born again of imperishable seed 
we've traded our birthright for a mess of pottage and not only having, but also making jokes about sub-biblical marriages. Very good. We've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking Chrysostom on marriage. Well, a very fun uh, first segment. So now let's get into Chrysostom proper or Chrysostom's rhetoric, how he approaches certain texts, how he preaches on the subject. Adam? Yeah, you got another sermon in this uh, volume called, it's just called Sermon on Marriage. It's really about 1 Corinthians 7, which is a very long discussion by Paul of marriage. And there's there's a couple really telling rhetorical things going on in this sermon. One is Chrysostom's really frequent use of rhetorical questions. From what we know, his hearers are giving him more and more vocal feedback during the sermon than probably anyone is doing, certainly in the Lutheran church of any kind today. And there are times when it seems from the writing that people are actually laughing at him because when he begins to denounce then current marriage customs, which we can talk about in a second, he then says, do you laugh at me? And then says, you're not, you're not laughing at, at, at the words of a fool, but at what is wisdom proper. And so you can see him responding maybe in real time to people's expressions, to their exclamations, to their ridicule. You can also see him setting things up by, by having long descriptions of what is evil or what is good. And they're very vivid, right? He's really good not, I mean, he, he'll tell a story in our, in our last segment, but he's really good not only at telling stories, but really at painting pictures painting very vivid pictures that make you feel disgust or feel delight. And then after he paints the picture, he'll provide you with a series of kind of a cascade of rhetorical questions that move you precisely to the place that he wants you to be as he's going to quote the scripture to confirm what he said, or he's going to draw that portion of the sermon to a conclusion. So he's very big on very lively response uh, questions and often these sort of cascades. And that these are all ways I think you can tell that he's doing this, let's not say off the top of his head, as if there's 
no preparation whatsoever, but there is a fullness of preparation, maybe not week by week, but throughout the entirety of his life, that he can speak this way. He's he's ready to go. And you can tell it because these transcriptions that we possess give all these evidences that he's extremely lively in his presentation. All right. So uh, give us some examples of uh, what he's what he's saying in these sermons. What, yeah. what, what is he saying that is getting such a reaction? <laughs> the thing that's getting the worst reactions, and it, it's, it's funny because he says, you know, he'll say in a, in a relatively dry way, marriage has two purposes for chastity, preservation of chastity and the procreation of children. Okay. Uh, everybody's like, yep, that sounds good. The thing that really gets people upset is when he critiques contemporary marriage customs. So what is customary in his time, you know, cue up your early 2000s rap and R&B playlist for the for the <laughs> wedding. Um, uh, what's customary in his time is to invite in performers who are usually pagan. So the music being played is not it, this is not necessarily the same thing as a church ceremony. So there are lots of other things going on, somewhat similar to a wedding reception or a a rehearsal dinner or these sorts of peripheral things. And when you're doing that, you're going to have music. That music is obviously in the ancient world going to be live, but I mean, apply it to our own time. And that music is not Christian. And what that means is that it encourages specifically lewdness and graphic descriptions of sex, invitations to sex. And he says, one of the ironies here is that this nice girl that you're marrying her parents, who are presumably Christian, I mean, all of these sermons are delivered in church, her parents have, and she have worked to preserve her virginity. And now on the very eve of her taking, you know, a spouse, a godly man, not in the passion of lust or unadvisedly, but in holiness and reverence. Now she's going to hear, you know, at the rehearsal dinner, let's say analogously about uh, graphic descriptions of sex and songs. And... (laughs) And so Chrysostom says, you know, I know that this is the custom, but I don't care whether or not it's customary. I care whether or not it's evil. Chrysostom is saying you can't play hot in her at your at your wedding. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That's he is saying that he he would call it. And this sounds sort of, you know, so, sounds sort of like, a, you know, classical education style when you invoke Aphrodite. But we understand what that means. <laughs> right. <laughs> We know, so, we know what you're driving at, old man. Right, exactly. And so it's it's interesting. I mean, he there's there's kind of no problem, and there is less liveliness and more sort of straight exposition of scripture texts when he's explaining. You know, okay, here are the purposes. God wants you not to burn and fornicate, but to you know live in chastity. And chastity doesn't simply mean virginity; it also means marriage. Right. Also, he wants you to procreate children. Okay. And that's fine. It's when he goes after things that people do that they get upset. And he has to become very rhetorically intense at those times. And this is why it's important in preaching. It's easy to preach vague sins, right? Or or vague illustrations. Right. It's only when they become very pointed and very... I mean, frankly, specific, right? That we really start to see feathers get ruffled, right? And sometimes you'll have feathers ruffled you didn't intend to ruffle, <laughs> right? Yep, 
Yeah, you didn't even know that the feathers were there, much less that you were ruffling them. So Right. And so is there a place, and we got to be careful because some people might hear our answer to this and uh, really go kind of whole hog into it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like when a guy gets out of seminary and he wants to like one-to-one imitate Luther or say David Scare from the pulpit. I'm sorry, that that doesn't happen. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's a myth. That's yeah, a myth. That is a myth. That's a conspiracy I, theory. That's baseless. But let's say it happened <laughs> yeah. for the sake of argument. Theoretically, allegedly. Yeah. We could we could concede that you know, a, an imaginary seminarian right. fresh out did this. Yeah. And you know, it it uh, and he blows a church up, right? So so there are ways <laughs> though that we can be pointed and uh, would you say that at times we should be pointed like Griffith's time? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think we obviously have to be because sometimes people don't put two and two together. And yeah. sometimes, even if they put two and two together, they're only capable, because they're sinners, of putting two and two together for someone else. Right. I think that's the real issue. It's not just because it's fun to just lay into people's problems. It's because if you like you can stand you can stand up there and say all day, look at these people, you know, they're stabbing themselves in the stomach with sharp knives. There can be somebody standing 10 feet away from you doing the very same thing, laughing along with you at the absurdity of other people's behavior. You have to stand you have to tell the guy you need to stop stabbing yourself personally in the stomach with a sharp knife. You need to stop doing that. And he might get angry at you, but at least you pointed out what was going on. And not just a sharp knife, any knife, any object. Yeah, that'll do it. You are doing this to yourself, please. Yeah, (laughs) put it down. Open your hand and drop it. It's also, I mean, it's, it's also, I think, especially hard when the thing that you're preaching about is something that is common. Because in this Sermon on Marriage about 1 Corinthians 7, the two big things really that Chrysostom's dealing with somewhat uniquely in this one are the customs surrounding the wedding. So everybody else has weddings like this. Why shouldn't I? And then also Christian men's understanding of what is adultery. Okay. So let me kind of explain this. I'm not sure. I mean, I think analogies, there are a couple different ones, but what's going on in his time is, you know, they're, they're not thinking about sex in the ways that we think, like heterosexual, homosexual, etc. They're thinking about sex really just in terms of like power and honor. And so if a man has sex with a married woman, kind of everybody recognizes that's a problem because you're taking what belongs to another man and you're dishonoring him by doing that. Okay, so that's, you know, cue like fighting a duel, you know, and then, and then problem solved. The thing that Chrysostom's audience is having trouble recognizing, and he knows it, is that it's adultery regardless of who it is. Because the thing that seems to be common and that he's warning against is just because you slept with a woman who was unmarried, whether she's a prostitute or your slave girl, doesn't mean it was okay. And just because everyone else does that, doesn't mean it was okay according to God's law. This is where the distinction between civil law and divine law becomes very important because if something is normal, right, speaking sociologically, or it's legal, people tend to assume that means it's okay to do. Right. 
And that's still the case. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and while, you know, in, in most of American culture, we don't have like the concubine loophole. Oh, right. it's not adultery because it was it was some, you know, unmarried woman that I have on the side or whatever. Right, right. Uh, it's possible that our, frankly, our closest, as far as a married couple goes, our closest uh, thing to this would be the way we view divorce largely now. Yeah, totally. Right, right. Where, well... The state says we can just get divorced, so what's the big deal? Or right. there's nothing legally, as far as the civil law goes, stopping me from being remarried. Right. And so, and so they say, what's the big deal? Well, you know, where where does the church get the gall to tell me what it can do? You know, the church doesn't make law, and yet right. Christians would disagree. Right. In the Bible. Right. 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 Yeah, because because the idea that as a Christian civil law, whatever, Trump divine law is is kind of on its face absurd, but it's also absurdly common. Mm-hmm. And as he runs into that, he's going to spend a lot of time. So for instance, Chrysostom doesn't spend a lot of time on a notion that is probably a source of great trouble in many Christian marriages today, which is also in 1 Corinthians 7, that the body of each spouse does not belong to that person, but belongs to the other one. So an application of that within a Christian marriage is that especially if you have kind of you have sex drives running at different speeds between the man and the woman, which is common, that the woman is not using sex as a kind of like power ploy over the husband or sort of hanging that over him, but instead that they are sharing their bodies with each other mutually. Chrysostom doesn't go into that because culturally, that's not really that much of a problem. This idea that like the wife has the right to like refuse sex with the husband. And so he's going to spend a lot more time on stuff that actually matters. That's going to get him in trouble. <laughs> and ultimately, it's he's going to displease the empress in Constantinople and he's going to get sent into exile and die on his way there. But he doesn't shrink from talking about what is actually going on in the lives of the people, even if it's highly awkward and could be kind of insulting. I mean, he's never graphic, let's say, but he's clear about what he's talking about, even when it could be awkward to discuss with men who are used to doing whatever they want. Yeah. Well, there's a popular cultural representation today and even and even in ancient literature of you know, uh, say a wife just being a burden to her husband or, or sorry, mm-hmm. uh, being vindictive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Just constantly. And we can get into, we're going to get into negative examples of husbands too, which we've touched on a little bit though. And today, uh, especially that sort of vindictive wife, as you mentioned, is, is kind of a power play. Right. And, and it's seen as a big, as a virtue. So that this is like for a spouse to do that is seen as a good thing. Right. So you get, if I can use, you know, maybe perhaps a milder example, um, a husband loves his wife's long hair, but, you know, she don't need no man. So she goes and she <laughs> has it all shorn off just to yeah, make it. Yeah, right, right. Right. Things like that, which we do see in, in marriages today and do see in our culture all the time. Right. Which, which to a lot of people would seem like a small thing, but it really isn't. When you're seeking to just gut your spouse, uh, that that's not healthy. Right. And when you're seeking to insist upon something like that, then that's not healthy either. And I mean, and I don't mean healthy from the world's perspective. I mean, healthy from God's perspective. It, it is disordered to have that kind of 
of conduct within within a marriage and those kinds of attitudes. Yeah. And so it's it's nice when you can read a patristic author who may well be preaching today. I mean, you, you, if we read his descriptions of what we'll call the wedding reception in these sermons, mm-hmm. it's virtually the same whether we want to admit it or not. <laughs> Just no mimes. There's no yeah, mimes. No mimes. No today. mimes. Yeah. But uh, but the DJ comes very close. well yeah there's there's also i mean the idea that you would begin that you would begin the marriage that way chrysostom is very adamant about a connection between how you start and how the thing goes and this is something that you also see when he discusses other vocations, other things in life, is that it is possible for people to change. For instance, he says, like, if your wife is surly, show her love and kindness and give her time to change. Yeah. Okay. Interesting consideration. But uh, so you're not doomed by a bad beginning, but a bad beginning is never auspicious for the marriage. And it's interesting that he thinks about this not in terms of like, I mean, in I, sometimes I think we partake of this, not necessarily astrological, but I want to get married on this day. Or I want to get married in this place and that would make it perfect. Or I want to have this dress or these flowers or these colors. For him, those, you know, what, how do I set this up? What should the wedding be about as well as the marriage is always going to be this focus on learning to be and to carry out more and more the roles God has assigned to me as a man or a woman, as a father or mother, etc. Right. And that's an important thing um, as far as preaching these things go. A lot of preaching these principles happens as a pastor meets with the couple to prepare for the wedding. Right. Today. And yeah, every wedding, virtually every wedding, there are exceptions, uh, gets bogged down in the ancillary stuff that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And pastors ought to be taking their time to meet with the couple, to pray with the couple, and to teach the couple concerning the purpose of marriage. And these guys who just do weddings, you know, just for money or, or, or without any kind of <laughs> right. consultation, right. Are, are, are not doing things well and are not doing things in, in order. And you're not obligated as a Christian, or excuse me, as a Christian pastor, to just marry anyone and everyone. That part of of the job is to say maybe these two people shouldn't get married, or in certain cases, de- depending on circumstances, these two may not get married. They cannot. Right. And so, a lot of the the hard work of this is done in this. Uh, I hate to call it couples counseling, or even I hate the word premarital counseling, but I I can't think of a, of a better way to put it because <laughs> it sounds like Bob Newhart or something. So but, but these conversations, these, these classes yeah. uh, beforehand, right. yeah. and it needs to be done. There's a lot of remedial work that needs to be done because we don't do a great job explaining what marriage is. And many of, of uh, many people are coming up in homes that really have no framework for a, for a biblical marriage. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a great point because you can see that Chrysostom is not, you know, these are not wedding sermons. I mean, I, I would say like if you're right. reserving your preaching on marriage to weddings proper, almost nobody's listening at the time anyway. You know, I don't want to say, you know, nobody's listening to you, but, you know, like they want to get to the vows. They want to get to the yeah, kiss. They want yeah, to they get to see. 
Let's yeah. say kiss. They want to do the cake, you know. So what he's doing is he's preaching to the congregation in general as these things arise in scripture as it's being read continuously in his time. And that means that everybody's learning about it. It also means that when you preach on stuff beforehand, if someone's already heard it four times before they say, hey, pastor, we want to get married. Can you do the wedding You know, next May or whatever? You're in a much better place than the first time that they ever hear that men and women are very different from each other. And God has set up marriage to function that way is, you know, when they say, hey, pastor, we're considering getting a divorce. You're just in a much worse place. So, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, hey, we're coming up on our second break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Adam Kuntz talking Chrysostom on marriage. Now, in this final segment, we're going to take a look at what Chrysostom has to say about how to find a wife, what to look for. But first, a little bit more about his rhetoric. Adam? Yeah, in the sermon, (laughs) How to Choose a Wife, right? So when you title your sermons, please don't be too clever, because it's very helpful if you're an unmarried young man and you pick up this volume and, uh, you know, your last sermon you see is how to choose a wife, you know exactly what you're going to get in that sermon. But his a couple devices that he uses in this sermon uniquely among the other two that we've talked about. One is at very great length, he retells the story of Genesis 24, which is the search by Abraham's servant for a wife for Isaac right? So this will result in finding Rebecca, and Rebecca's qualities are going to be the paradigm that Chrysostom uses to talk about what you're looking for. But this narration is, again, very vividly told, and most of his narration is simply the story. He doesn't interrupt himself at great length to explain why this matters or what's going on, it's mostly retelling the story very vividly. So he's covering what is a very long chapter in scripture pretty quickly. Several verses are covered by each paragraph. And in doing that, I think it's interesting to note that he doesn't spend a lot of time telling stories about really anything else except the Bible. It's not that he never talks about anything else. I mean, we talked in the last section about how he will bring up 
uh, contemporary situations, contemporary problems, but he makes reference to those things. Or in making an application of scripture, he'll bring those things in as positive or negative examples. When he devotes a lot of time to telling a story, it's never a non-biblical story. Very wholesome. I, I like yeah, that. Yeah, right. We could learn a lot from that. Instead of, uh, you know, telling the story about the time you went to the Grand Canyon or, or you know, two, <laughs> these two boys, uh, you know, went to a river. <laughs> I, know, I, I never know where pastors get those stories from. Like, no, what, and I've heard them all use the same one. So there's got to be a big old book of them somewhere. Well, I think there, I think there actually are books. Yeah, I know. I, yeah. I, I sort of Mean. said that hoping that people wouldn't actually go out and buy them. Um, somebody's like very offended right now looking at their shelf full of them. And I'm, and I'm sorry if I hurt you. And I'm sorry that someone that this happened to you. But yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it does get a little bit. I mean, you, to be fair, you take someone like a, like Walter Meyer who could use it to pretty great effect. But even then I'm kind of like, okay, dude. And even then he's often telling like war stories or something, which is at least mildly and probably true. But yeah, just, but just to use the, and nowadays uh, we need to use as much of the biblical text as we can because people learn that way. People don't hear stories. There are tons of, of stories in the Bible that people will go their whole lives and never know because nobody cracked it open and a preacher never gave it to them. Right. You know, I mean, I know right. that they should all be reading them, but it, it's amazing when you bring up some. It's kind of esoteric uh, point from the Bible, and people are like, "Where where did that come from?" Right, and you're like, uh, "Old Testament." <laughs> you know, well, it's it's in the chapters of Genesis you didn't read. It wasn't chapters one or two, and nothing about Abraham. So, yeah, and things like that. It, it's a very powerful tool, and I do think that biblical examples go further than these fictitious examples that we can come up with. Right, because when they're given, so. In the very last couple paragraphs of this sermon, that's when Chrysostom will bring home the application. And I think what he's done is the story sets it sets itself up to be impressed very vividly. I mean, that's that's an advantage stories have over pretty much everything else because human beings themselves are constructing their own sense of life in terms of a story. And this isn't, you know, and so stories have this particular power. So he's not interrupting the story very much. But at the very end, that biblical story has a lesson for fathers, mothers, young women and young men. And that's when he draws it out. And he doesn't have to spend tons of time doing that. It never becomes tedious because the story has already done that for him. And he just has to make quick reference for each group of people to what happened in the story. All right. So does he have anything to tell us about how to find a wife? Did you learn anything? <laughs> well, I, you know, I reading it, I thought, man, I, I got good advice about this, you know, um, even though this was the first time that I read this sermon, <laughs> I think I received similar advice from different people before, before getting married because he, well, I mean, you know, we're, we're both pastors. So, I mean, you know, the one problem that he talks a lot about that, that we don't really have, although I think it applies to, a lot of financial decision making in marriages is he warns against marrying for money. With him, you're talking about a woman who has inherited wealth from her family. I think this also applies to incomes, especially when the woman's income is above the man's. This always creates a sense of mine and yours. 
which yeah. he's very, very against in anything in the marriage, in this specific case, money. That sense of mine and yours creates bitterness and strife and contention. And if it goes away, or if the man fails to have as much as the woman does, or she knows that they live the way they do because of what she does or what she's brought into the marriage, this is an unending source of yeah. sadness. Well, when Chrysostom says things like this, I don't feel so, you know, I don't feel so weird. Like on <laughs> the podcast, I've, yeah. I've ranted about like uh, couples doing separate laundry and, yeah. and it just b- bugs me so much. I mean, there's a time when like, yeah, you want the pile of like dirty work clothes over here and this or that, but it's like, sure. no, I do my laundry and she does her laundry. Right. That makes you roommates. <laughs> and it sounds like a, a very, you know, like why, why worry about that? Because I, I, I'm telling you, it's a symptom of a greater problem. Yeah. Right. right. Is describing it here. It becomes something other than a Christian marriage. I mean, if you go from the book of Acts with holding everything in common and what you kind of see in the new Testament about sharing things and about mutual submission, mm-hmm. this yours and mine stuff doesn't work. No, it breeds dissension within the ranks but it also creates a cover for sin when you're kind of hiding something right. from your spouse. Right. And, yeah. and it gives excuse, uh, you know, kind of a convenient excuse to hide sin, I think. Yeah, no, I think, and I, I think it, another point that he brings up is that God has actually decided by virtue of our natures, what our spheres of life are. So the idea that, the man would have all of these kind of random shifting responsibilities within what Chrysostom describes as the private sphere, that is the sphere of the family. And the woman would potentially have all these shifting responsibilities, career, etc., within the public sphere. He understands those things to be attuned to the man's nature in the public sphere, respectively, and the woman's nature in the private sphere, in as much as we're actually better than the other sex within the given sphere. And when those things are mixed up, it creates inevitable contention because now we're competing with each other, either in making money, advancing our careers, doing the laundry, cleaning the house. Whereas when you have a division of labor and a division of interest, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not competing with my wife to be a better cook and she's not competing with me to be a better pastor and that actually makes life much better much much better right yeah you're not you're not the same no and it would be kind of weird if you were and and i i think it's really important to say because chrysostom's life actually gets ruined i mean by a woman in the public sphere that is an empress so let's be clear chrysostom isn't saying this because it's easy to say in his place and time 100 percent yeah it's like uh see also john knox in the first blast right. of the trump <laughs> that's right to the throne how does that work out for him right now? exactly we should do an episode on that by the way <laughs> yeah i mean these, these sorts of problems are yeah we get perennial idea, yeah perennial and it, this idea that it was a misogynistic society then and, and you could just say whatever you want about women it's just right. not true not true not even close. And I, it, it, it concerns I, what I think is our chauvinism about the past, which I think is laughable 
considering the general standard of education, even among the educated in our in our time. And that is that somehow the past, they were, you know, they were sort of cavemen in a certain sense. And one thing you can see is that a lot of the problems that we have are simply the normalization of things that were struggles in Chrysostom's day, but are now normalized and celebrated in our own. Right. Yeah. And we have to go back. We do have to go back. And we we have to go back because Genesis 24 is so wholesome. And that's why Chrysostom spends so much time telling the story, because he's going to use the story to reveal what am I looking for in a wife? I think maybe the first thing to say about what am I looking for is that Chrysostom is harsh in this sermon and in others about the idea that physical beauty is all that important. Now, it it's really interesting, his observations on this. One is, if she's not that, he's very, let's just say, direct. Okay, this is all in, a, these are in sermons, publicly preached. If she's not that good looking, it's not her fault, and you don't need to make her feel bad about it. <laughs> okay, conversely, if she is good looking, and you're always telling her how she's good looking, this is going to run to her head and make her prideful and potentially make her adulterous. It's very interesting. I mean, I, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, you know, like, I don't think it's that bad to tell your wife she's beautiful, but that's okay. That's fine. Whatever. Like, just saying, don't lay it on too thick. That's what he's saying. He is saying that. So there's that that he observes. He also says, I think this is very psychologically perceptive. If she is good looking, you're going to get used to it. And then it won't matter anyway, because you'll take it for granted. I think that I thought that was that's good, you know, because I think he he realizes in the comparison that he draws at some length, this is a very vivid picture he paints, is look at how beautiful the stars are and look at how God has erected them for mankind's blessing. Okay, that's that's Chrysostom weather posting, almanac posting, you know, just let's note that. Like a couple of years before us. Yeah, this is yeah, this is a this is an almanac posting, you know, Stan account. So anyway, so he says that he says, look how beautiful they are and look how men ignore the fact that they are there every night. You know, there's no, there's no light pollution. There's no sodium orange streetlights. We can all see them every night, look at their beauty. And yet we ignore them because they are so familiar. The same thing will happen with your beautiful young wife. Well, you know, this happens with every time some celebrity with a beautiful wife or handsome husband, or whatever, yeah. had an affair. And it's like, can you believe he would cheat on her with her? Right. And especially if it's like a regular person that they have the affair <laughs> with. And it's like, yeah, you can, because right. that's that's part of the fall, I think, that this discontent. Discontent, right, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's what this is. This is becoming discontent with what you have, no matter how beautiful she is. Right. I mean, it's kind of like... You know, even if your wife is a great cook, right? But if if she makes the same thing every day, right? You know, and that doesn't make it right, though. That wouldn't. Just as if she's beautiful every day, that doesn't give you a right to get tired of her and go out and cheat. Well, if if she makes the same meal every day, you don't get to like throw it against the wall, like, <laughs> right. you know, just throw it at the dogs immediately because you don't Incre- want to eat. Yeah, them. incredible yeah. levels of med posting right now, but yeah, right. <laughs> This is an Italian podcast. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, so what he's, what he's saying is, you know, uh, Rebecca is, is even beautiful, but the, the qualities that she displays are, 
sometimes he'll list three, sometimes he'll list two. He kind of effectively means the same thing. They are gentleness and chastity and piety. Because these things are themselves imperishable and part of, to go all the way back to where we started, they're part of what he'll talk about as the spiritual purpose of marriage. That is that what I'm looking for in her is a certain beauty of soul, which will increase and will not also, it cannot, because she also is, is God's child, it cannot perish as, as physical beauty does. Mm-hmm. And so these these things are what will ensure happiness in marriage, not a certain quantity of physical beauty or a sense of, okay, well, you know, I tried to get, you know, an eight, but I got a five, so that's okay. That sort of thinking is inevitably discontented. So if I get an eight, I get bored with an eight, and now I'm looking for a nine or a 10, Okay. What doesn't create discontent is the sense of contentment and joy that you have in dwelling with someone with whom you are one in Christ in a way that is really unique for you among the entirety of the human race. Right. Sorry, I'm just now laughing at 10 or an 8. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's it's the celebrity situation that you described. You yeah. And you get tired ever. You can't go for five twos. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere, somewhere Brigham Young feels awkward, but yeah, right. <laughs> somewhere. somewhere in the terrestrial kingdom. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I, I you know, I, th- I think that, it, and it's something that he brings up in how to choose a wife, but it's, it's kind of everywhere is that what I'm looking for is a sort of imperishable, imperishable beauty, similar to what Paul talks about when he says, you know, do not, do not let your adornment be with braided hair or gold or pearls, right? Because those things are perishable, moth and rust corrupt and destroy those things. Let your let you let yourselves be adorned rather with good works. Right. And we forget that the Bible says this, and we forget that the church fathers say this. Right. When we hear it, when certain people hear it, I, I guess Chrysostom and Paul and Jesus are now pietists or something. <laughs> you know, it, it's almost as if externals do reflect internals. And and that we should really ponder this more. I mean, you see even how like you watch a, a special like on TLC or something, if you're at your parents' house where they still have cable boomer cable TV going yep. on twenty four seven. Yep. And you get you get something like my big fat gypsy wedding or whatever. <laughs> and the way these the way these gypsies just dress at a wedding. Right. It's not, it's not good. But you look at even a, a regular wedding. <laughs> not right. those gypsy weddings, but a regular one. Um <laughs> yeah, and, that's right. You know, and they, but or the way girls dress in general, or the way men dress in general, it's uh, even even married people and single people. It's a it's a very strange thing. We've as Christians, we've failed to teach something somewhere. Because I don't believe that Paul is and Chrysostom are, are simply speaking in cultural terms here. Right. I think they, they have an insight about the connection between appearance and one's, let's to say biblically, way that is deeper than just, okay, you can't judge a book by its cover. Yes, that's true, abstractly considered. You can't judge a book by its cover. But most of the time you can, like I'm sitting with all my books right now. And, you know, if I open up a Homeric dictionary, 
I'm going to get words listed in the Iliad in there. You know, like most of the time the book, the cover is reflective of something and that connection between how I present myself and what my life is actually about will very often be there. And it's something to consider in your own life. Okay. If I prize appearances or I prize money, that's what I'm going to get. And it's going to disappoint me if I prize a certain beauty of spirit, a certain gentleness, kindness, docility, piety, then that's also what I'm going to get. Yeah, absolutely. So one minute left. What's our takeaway from Chrysostom preaching Christ uh, in the context of marriage and family? He's preaching Christ as the foundation and also the pattern of Christian marriage. He's also preaching Christ in ways that are vivid and memorable and timely so that people know exactly what he's saying, even when it's a little hard to hear. And they can remember most of all Bible stories such as Genesis 24 that pattern and display and exemplify what marriage should be really from all concerned parties in the case of Genesis 24. And he's preaching in ways that are going to be direct and directly perceived. He doesn't leave too much to the imagination, except the vividness with which he portrays biblical situations and admonitions about marriage. And all of it, you, you, you come away, whether you've been married for many years or you're still looking to be married, you come away with a very clear understanding of how and why Christ loves the church and therefore how and why Christian marriage is what the scriptures say that it is. Very good. Adam, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank Uh, you. We we will have more Chrysostom coming up in this series. We're going to tackle wealth and poverty uh, with Chrysostom uh, pretty soon coming up on the podcast. It's basically our Rerum Novarum episode. uh, (laughs) That's right. The way it's beginning to look. So, folks, go ahead and do your reading uh, in preparation for that one. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. Let us therefore painstakingly care for our wives and children. By doing so, we are making our obligation of headship an easy task. Thus, we will have a good defense before Christ's judgment seat, and will be able to say, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. If the husband is admirable and the head sound, then the rest of the body will suffer no harm.